welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to Syosset Library's Turn the Page podcast. I am Jessica, and I am here with the author of... Um, a wonderful, beautiful book, and um, I'm going to actually invite her to introduce herself first, um, and then we're going to talk about uh, the book of everlasting things, which will be everlasting in your memory after you read it. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. My name is Anchal Malhotra. I am an oral historian, and I live in Delhi, and with this book, I guess I get to call myself a novelist as well. So, but you've written you've written before, correct? Yes, I have. You have, but this, so and there's like so many interesting things that that you do, and we'll kind of get to that because I'm curious how it informs this story. But uh, so this story, the book of everlasting things, first of all, has like one of the most beautiful opening lines ever. Um, I I am a, I am a sucker for opening lines, so I'm just going to kind of like throw this one out there. It's his nose woke up first, and this is a story about. First of all, this is a love story. Um, it's a story about uh, the partition in um, 1947. It's a story about um, different religions um, in the Indian Pakistani region, um, and you know relations and how the partition affected them and families and friendships. But yeah, it's a love story um, at its very core of between um, Samir and Ferdas. Um, and um, Samir, who is the one who you, you know, you find out his nose woke up first, comes from a family um, who makes perfumes. And the, the, um, the scent and, you know, the senses really take center stage in um, how Samir relates to everything in the world, including um, when he meets as a, as a child, he meets Firdaus, who comes from a Muslim family. Samir is um, Hindu um, and she's learning calligraphy and uh, her, her family is also has is very interesting. And I'll get to that. But um, where did this story, where did the kernel of this story sort of begin to bloom when uh, you started writing it? I think different parts arrived at different times. You know, um, I've been writing for nearly a decade now about partition. I write nonfiction based on oral testimonies. So it involves me going across India, Pakistan, recording the stories of people who had lived through partition. So my vocabulary of partition is quite rich uh, because it really is my subject. So I think part of it arrived from there, of course, the, in the you know, the religions and the politics of the time. But I think also what was um, really important to me is the human story of partition, which always gets lost. We always talk about the violence. We talk about, you know, how many people died, how many people displaced and hardly, well, I wouldn't say hardly anyone because it is uh, in the last decade changed quite a bit. But for the most part, the conversation hardly ever moves to the human. And so part of it arrived from that. But the story is very sensorial. It is guided by the senses. And the kernel of that was um, my mother told me a story about my grandfather who used to be a chemist. 
And she said that um, he used to get all of these samples of smells. So he would get like papaya and melon and then strawberry and stuff like that. And whatever he never used, he brought home. And in the summertime, I live in India, it's very hot. We have these water coolers that cool the house. They're kind of like local ACs almost. And they have water in them and grass. And he would pour the perfume that he hadn't used for his work into the water. And it would eventually make the whole house smell of a rose one day or a papaya the next day. And I, I just thought that that gesture was so beautiful. And, you know, to be guided by smell all through the day was lovely. And so piece by piece, I think the story came to me. It, it didn't arrive fully formed. How long did it take you to write this? Long. Um, I think I started, <laughs> yeah. I started writing an outline in 2016 in at the end of the year. And, you know, when you've been writing in a particular genre for a very long time, it's a bit weird to think of yourself as doing anything outside it. And so I think I started writing the first sentences in 2017 in the spring and it's being published in 2022. So I guess five years. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's really very interesting when you talk to a lot of authors and you kind of see, you know, a lot of authors will be like, yeah, 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 I, I wrote this like at the end of the pandemic and it just came. And then some authors, you know, they really kind of take their time and they need to sort of um, live in every sentence. And that's not to say that one book is better than another. It's just very interesting hearing people's processes and reading uh, the book of everlasting things where you do really feel like you're living in each sentence, you're living in each page, you're feeling what the characters feel. I get it. Um, so that's actually very, that's actually very interesting. You know, there's, there's a lot of generational um things that kind of come up in this story you know um Samir as as I mentioned um you know he's from a Hindu family and um this you know this takes place or at the beginning of the story sort of takes place around when um partition is sort of echoing um World War II had come to a close and the fallout of that is just sort of splintering everywhere um, because there really was almost like a tidal wave of effects that came from that um, and came from the basic involvement of the entire world getting involved in this conflict and then how it affected, you know, this the, basically the civilizations they had colonized. Um, and well, I think, you yeah. know, in the case of India, um, it was kind of thrust into the war without its uh, without its uh, knowledge. Yes. Uh, one day, yes. And so I think um, decolonization has a lot of effects in India, particularly because after say two hundred years, the British have left India. But I think it's it's very important to remember that these there were common people that were impacted by these large decisions taken in the hallways of history. And their stories are never told and they're often erased. And this is what happened with partition for a long time. You know, I mean, or even the stories of the soldiers who went to fight in the Second World War. They were never told. So that's, I think part that's, of that's the, true. You never you never hear about them. Really, you yeah. never hear anything other than really 
the American or the British and sometimes other like Western, Caucasian, but you never, ever, ever hear about any of the those who were yeah like the and, and the impact on like the indian cultures or the other you know other races basically who whose land had been colonized and sort of brought to these conflicts yeah um you know you live in america and you learn about the american experience but studying in india as a child when we were taught about world war ii we were never taught that indians were there World War One. Wow. Never that in, yeah, I don't think it it makes up our you know, yeah, our psychological understanding of war has nothing to do with India, which is so strange because in World War One India had one point five troops, um, fighting for the British Empire, and in World War Two it had two point five, and so I think um, along with partition. The story is also very much about one of the sons, Samir's uncle, who goes to fight in the First World War and how, yes, you know, the effects of war on an individual who does not expect war to be the way war is and anticipates it to be this great adventure, which many Indian soldiers did, and how it leads him, really, I think war leads him to perfumery, you know. Yeah, I, I was, you know, I was... Yeah. passed down. I, I was getting there um, and I'm glad you kind of picked it up because yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And, you know, the, the effect, the, the, the PTSD, the effect that it was world war one that Vivek had fought in um, it, it was just so heartbreaking to see, you know, through, through his eyes and through the eyes of the people who loved him, how he kind of, went off and you know discovered yes as you said that it wasn't um a big adventure and then brought him to something so sensitive like perfume perfume and um samir you know who was a gentle soul as well um you know with all of these sensory gifts was it was such almost like almost like a salve, you know, almost like something that brought out what, you know, Vivek had lost almost. Um, and then in the case of um, Firdaus and her family, you know, her father specifically seemed really intent on being progressive and raising her, you know, to be independent and to be sort of like this, um, you know, like, basically, you know, in charge of her own life. And there was something I wanted to also ask you about. There was a story um, that, you know, he and his wife had sort of um, argued about uh, the story of Princess uh, Zebanisa. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I had been unaware of her until now. And that I kind of went down this rabbit hole of uh, learning about her. Very interesting. So, as you rightly said, Firdaus's father, Altaf, um, he's very persistent that his daughter should grow up with the same education as he did, because he had seen his sister be married off at a very young age, be uh, become a mother, and then become a widow. And she was sort of sent home because she couldn't, she had no education, and she really had no agency. And she, and, and Altaf said that if I ever have a daughter, her, that will not be her fate. So, you know, he educated her and it's very rare uh, for girls to learn calligraphy. And Fidos sees this when she goes into the, 
you know, studio, the atelier. She sees it and she asks her father, like, why, why is, why are they all boys? What are the girls? Uh, and she feels it because she's a very young uh, girl and all of these students are young boys. And then her father tells her a story of the Princess Ebonisa, who is um, the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb's daughter, who was a woman of great talent. She was a poet. She was a writer. She uh, memorized the Quran. She knew languages. She knew sciences and the math. And... Um, over time, as her father gains power, as he draws enemies uh, from within his own family, she would, this is what the parents fight about. The parents fight about the fact that um, Zebunisa supports her brother in the claim for the throne. And so her father imprisons her for like 21 years or something until her death. But um, the mother says, no, no, that's not the story. The story is that she is basically uh, involved in hedonistic things like the learning of the arts and languages. And that is why her father, who was once a progressive man as well, imprisons the daughter. And um, the thing is, history is also open to interpretation as well, right? So we can read both accounts if we actually, like you, go down that rabbit hole. But uh, Altaf is very persistent that his daughter should should be instructed in everything that he was. And he never makes her feel lesser than. And as the political situation gets worse in India, as we lead, as we come up to partition, uh, his opinions are also changed because of what he sees. And, and he's fearful. He's fearful for her future. He's fearful... Uh, for the fact that she has fallen in love with a Hindu boy. I think there was great uncertainty within people and it caused them to do things they wouldn't have otherwise done. Now, I always say like, these are instances where history decides your fate rather than you. And sometimes it brought out the worst in people. So that's that kind of brings me to so with your with your oral history project, and I also want to talk a little bit um, about the Museum of Material Memory um, and how this kind of informed this story. Um, you know, uh, for those who are going to read this book, you just kind of have to like make your time to, you know, quiet time to sit down and just sort of absorb it. Don't expect to like speed read through it because you're going to want to, like you're going to want to live and breathe and sort of feel the weight of every chapter as it unfolds because it spans decades and generations. Um, and, you know, I, I, we, I, I'm curious um, because we don't, here in America learn about the partition other mm -hmm. than, oh, this happened and now there's this and now there's this. Um, collecting the oral, you know, the the stories and the first, you know, the first um, uh, um, reference, uh, what, the word, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, fir the first person experiences, mm -hmm. um, how much is really untold about, you know, how neighbors just kind of were split and how relationships and families were torn? 
I don't think we will ever know enough about it because so many people who lived through that and survived it are no longer with us. So history has died with them. But the one thing I will say about partition is that there is no one way to understand it because every single person has a different story. And if you think you know enough about partition, you will likely be met with an, another experience you absolutely did not expect. And this happens very much when Indians, if Indians ever get to talk to Pakistanis, they find that you know history has not only divided land, but it has divided history, it has divided the interpretation of history and the way the story is passed down the generations. So with partition, the one thing that remains unexplained is how neighbor could turn against neighbor or how um, the violence erupted in the manner that it did or you know the, the form that it took and what it caused people to do. But one thing is certain that it was the largest mass migration of people outside of wartime. It was like 14 million people displaced and a million killed. And families would, you, you very rightly say that, I think this breaks my heart the most when I record stories is when they say, you know, my aunt remained on the other side. I was never able to see her or my brother or my mother or my father. And they cannot meet because of the politics surrounding India and Pakistan. They cannot meet for births or deaths or weddings. Uh, and an entire like sort of microcosm of family is disrupted because of politics. Uh, so I think that it defined people's lives, like people very much see their lives as pre-partition and post-partition. And that's the case for my family as well. All four of my grandparents came from what became Pakistan. And I think as is the case for many first novels, there's a lot of autobiography that goes into it. So uh, the house that the Samir lives in, Vijbhavan, my grandfather's house in Delhi is called Vijbhavan, but it is modeled the house in the novel is modeled after my grandmother's house that was in Lahore in Shahalmi, which burnt down in 47, very much like Samir's house. Um, and I think like so many of these stories are stories that I've heard now over the last decade from my family. And they find kind of, I find ways to, you know, insert them, which makes it feel a lot more personal. I mean, it was, it's beautiful and kind of, and knowing that, you put that in it, it kind of adds a whole other layer to um to talking to you about the book um uh so would you like to talk a little bit about um what the museum of material memory is and um how some of it might have informed uh the book yes um i should also start by saying that i wasn't trained as a writer or a historian but i trained to be a printmaker that's wow, my <laughs> you've That's done my a really great job as both. No, I know. Um, I, I often have like imposter syndrome for everything. Um, you know, and so because I trained to be an artist, something that was so tactile, that I think also lends itself to the sensorial. And my first book on partition was on objects that refugees had carried when they migrated across the border. Things, very common things like utensils or books or shawls and precious things like jewelry or heirlooms or any kind of cultural artifacts. And when I was doing that research, people from across, um, really across uh, the subcontinent began to reach out and say, oh, we have this old object. Do you want to come see it? Or you, can you come speak to my grandmother? She has this shawl that's like 200 years old. And I couldn't always go there. 
you know, because of travel restrictions, because of visa restrictions. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had this um, digital portal where people could write about artifacts of age related or not related to partition, but basically some place that would celebrate the material culture of the subcontinent, the undivided subcontinent. And I think objects have this incredible way of being a democratic space to have conversations. So if there is a story about a utensil that is in a Pakistani house and someone in Nepal reads it and says, wait, I have the same thing in my house. That's a way for them to have a conversation that's unrestricted by borders. So the Museum of Material Memory was uh, is an attempt to have um, a digital crowdsourced archive uh, that celebrates the material culture of the undivided subcontinent. That is very cool. Were any so? Do any of the objects um, appear in the book? Ah, uh, well, I don't know if any of the objects appear in the book, but there are so many things from my own life that I put in there, like the objects that Samir collects after the fire. Yes, or um, the objects that he gives to his granddaughter in Paris, or you know, the perfume bottle that he gives to Firdos. These mm -hmm. are things that I have collected. Like I've become a kind of collector of perfumery paraphernalia over the last five years. So, so yeah. So how much, um, first of all, how much research did you need to do into perfumery to make this, uh, to make this book work? Well, I mean, common people don't, I mean, we take our nose for granted, right? And our olfactory sense is probably the least understood and least studied. And, uh, but that being said, the more we smell, the better we smell. If we smell with intention, then we get better at it. So over the last five years, I shadowed a perfumer. Um, I approached her, I told her about the book and um, because I didn't have the vocabulary of smell. It is such an esoteric um, industry. There are so many secrets and rightly so. I don't, you know, nobody understands. A common person does not understand how a flower becomes a liquid, becomes a perfume, something we spray on our wrists. We don't understand the science behind that. And we don't understand the specificity of that vocabulary. And if my character was going to be a perfumer, live and breathe and exist in a perfume realm, he would have to embody that vocabulary. So a lot of the conversations around perfume in the book are conversations I had with my perfumer. And especially places where Vivek is teaching Samir or Samir is teaching Anuk are um, literally scenes where I was learning to do something I had no idea about. So again, I think it comes from a very, um, I think it comes from a place of experience also because you're writing about something you are experiencing. And um, it's hard though, I have to say, I still don't quite like, perfumery is a realm I only temporarily inhabited. And um, I think now that I smell less and less, I probably smell worse and worse. Um, but it allowed me to be a part of a very special place for some time. So this all said, um, uh, you must be so excited for this book to finally be out in the world after um, <laughs> after the, the amount of time and, and uh, research and love that you put into it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm really nervous, actually, because, uh, you know, it's a new genre. 
and uh, there is uncertainty about how it's going to be received. But I'm also very excited for people to kind of immerse themselves in it. Like you said, it's not a book to be read quickly. Um, and I think, uh, I know it's a long book, but if you give it time, I think it, this happened with me too. When I was writing the book, it took me a long time to get into the text. When I was in it, it took me a very long time to get out of it. So I would have dreams about it. I would uh, think back to the characters. Like, I think it it has a kind of hold over you, that world. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, again, I, I think it'll be very well received. You know, I think um, there's you. just, there's just a lot. It's very rich. Um, and it really is, you know, um, especially no matter, you know, where you are, it's just, it, it's, it's, go, it's a good read under a blanket, cup of coffee, cup of tea over a weekend, a few weekends. I think people are going to really learn a lot and also love it um, and, lo and fall in love with the characters. And, you know, I, I mean, I think um, generational stories are something everybody can somewhat relate to because we all come from somewhere um, and, you know, we're all sort of trying to, whether you're discovering your family through one of those um, genetic sites now that people are all doing, you know, um, or whether you know because you're, you know, your biological, you, you know, you don't know your biological family, so you're going that route, or you do, and you're sort of absorbing um, what you know versus what other people know. I think that this is just sort of a universal story wrapped in just a beautiful tale and especially for us stateside something we don't really learn enough about if at all um you know i um my um hometown which is where i live right now has a very very large um indian and pakistani muslim hindu um population um and you know when i was a kid it was not as diverse as it is now and now it has grown and you know i think that the like i i mean you really you really got to learn the entirety of history which is kind of impossible but um it is important well i think at least learn beyond ourselves you know that that is really essential and uh, that's that's one thing that i do a lot in my nonfiction work is unlearning or relearning yeah um, I have a question for you do you have a favorite character in the book that's a really good question and I think it it, it had to be Vivek honestly I know yeah I just I, I really felt for him yeah. yeah so much and so much of that you know and how he related to Samir was just I, I felt it in my heart um and you know every time you kind of go back to him it was it, he was very hard to shake and he was very hard for Samir to shake too as he went through his um his time um and you know like I, I don't want to really talk too much about what happens you know because you know that there is this this love story, this childhood um, love between him and Firdas, but there's a lot more that happens. 
And uh, there's a lot of different roads, but I, I feel like, you know, Vivek and his experiences are kind of always at Samir's shoulder. Um, yes. So I have to say it's Vivek. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. I felt a lot for him as well. Um, he is a composite of so many men that went to war. Um, and the other thing is that he's made up of so many characters of my own grandfather. Like their birthdays are the same, their favorite smell, vetiver. Um, and similarly, you know, my grandmother is in, in many characters as well. But I think you're right. There is a lot of um, there's a lot of family history and secrets that define us that we don't really realize when we are young. We're also very cruel to our ancestors when we are young, you know. And yeah. then we see when we are older how much of their story is actually our story. And I think this happens a lot in the book that a lot of the history, well, a lot of our story has been lived before we were born. And it defines us in some way. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Um, was that a surprise to you that I chose Vivek? <laughs> no, no. Um, I don't know. I'm always curious because like, the thing is, I never thought that I would be able to write um, if I, in retrospect, it, they are very complex characters because they are also kind of unlikable characters at one point. Uh, everyone, everyone has something in it. Um, but I'm always curious what character people related to the most. You know, when I asked my mother, she said Mohan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, there are so many memorable characters, but but for me, yeah, he just spoke to me immediately, um, and sort of, you know, I I just felt his presence. It's strange. I always, I know it's a love story. It's about Samir and Firdaus, but I always consider the second protagonist Vivek. So for me, it's always Samir and Vivek. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Yes. Well. Again, um, thank you so much. This was lovely. Uh, the Book of Everlasting Things is out this December. So um, check it out. I think uh, this is going to, it's going to be, I mean, it, it's historical fiction, but it's so much, it's so much. And um, I think people are going to love it. Um, so once again, this was Jessica with Syosset Libraries Turn the Page podcast. And our guest today was? Antun Malhotra. And we are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.